Thank you, Becky, very much for leading us, guiding us this morning. My name is John Fairchild, and it's my privilege to open up the scriptures, God's word, and uh, share a message with us this morning. Uh, I would uh, like to just repeat what's been said already. So good to see you all in person here this morning, although I know we're not all here from Grace Community Church. Uh, we're uh, recording the message and going to be showing today's message next Sunday online. Uh, and to those who are part of our church but just not ready or able to be here with us this morning, and I recognize you folks out there, and, uh, and we, we pray that uh, in whatever form you're participating in grace this morning, that uh, God will meet you, speak to you, bless you, and encourage you. We, we so do. I just agree in thanking everyone who has served in so many ways uh, to, get the, to get the plane off the runway here this morning, and uh, hopefully we'll, we'll fly well, and, and by, God's, by God's help and by God's grace. Uh, we've been, um, we've been uh, through a difficult year and a half, as you know, as a church, and, uh, and we've thought as we talked about uh, what should we begin to teach about and, and instruct us on, and we're, we're going back to basics, uh, back to key foundational core things to just build that strong as we move ahead into the future, uh, into the fall as a church. And uh, what's more basic than love? Love one another. A uh, new commandment I give to you, said Jesus, and so uh, that's what I'm talking about this morning. And, uh, and I'd like to uh, just uh, open with a prayer here, and you can pray with me. And when I say at the end, let the church say amen, you can say amen, and I hope to hear you. This is a short prayer. Lord, this morning as we take up an old and familiar subject, I find myself worried. Worried that we will only half listen because we've heard it so many times. I pray that at this very moment, you would grace us with a fresh urgency and fresh and open ears so that we might grow yet more and more in a life of God-glorifying, Christ-honoring, church-building, gospel-declaring love. Let the church say amen. <clears throat> if you have a Bible with you, we're going to read uh, one of the most famous passages on love in all of the scriptures from 1 Corinthians 13. Uh, does it come up on screen this morning? Yep. Oh, okay. Um, you want to read it with me? Let's, let's read in unison. Uh, don't shout or spit or anything. Just, just kind of <laughs> quietly, uh, quietly read together. Um, by the way... Paul didn't write this famous passage for weddings. It's often read at weddings because everybody there is feeling all lovey-dovey and in love with each other and all is good with the world and the sun is shining and, and oh, what a lovely place to read 1 Corinthians 13. But let me tell you this, just in case you didn't know, this passage was written to a church that had real problems. They were fighting and there was immorality happening that was kind of gross. Uh, they were taking each other to court. They were very short-tempered with one another. They were judging one another. They were arguing and, and forming camps and parties as to who was their favorite apostle and teacher. And Paul was writing his letter to the Corinthians to correct some of these problems. 
And, uh, and I, I, I could see, you know, he wrote chapter 1, 2, 3, 4, all the way down to chapter 12. They, they were spiritual gifts for being abused for self-glory instead of for serving one another. Like, it was bad. And I could see Paul in his frustration pacing the floor in his room. And then a thought comes to him. And he sits down at a piece of paper and he picks up his pen and his quill and his, dips it in the ink. And he says, I've got to say this. Let's read it together. If I speak in the tongues of men or of angels, but do not have love, I am only a resounding glong or a clanging cymbal. If I have the gift of prophecy and can fathom all mysteries and all knowledge, if I have a faith that can move mountains, but do not have love, I am nothing. If I give all I possess to the poor and give over my body to hardship that I may boast, but do not have love, I gain nothing. Love is patient, love is kind, it does not envy, it does not boast, it is not proud, it does not dishonor others, it is not self-seeking, it is not easily angered, it keeps no record of wrongs. Love does not delight in evil, but rejoices with the truth. It always protects, always trusts, always hopes, always perseveres, but love is never fails. But where there are prophecies, they will cease. Where there are tongues, they will be stilled. Where there is knowledge, it will pass away. For when we, we know in part and we prophesy in part, but when completeness comes, what is in part disappears. When I was a child, I talked like a child, I thought like a child, I reasoned like a child, when I became a man, I put the ways of childhood behind me. For now we see only a reflection as in a mirror. Then we shall see face to face. Now I know in part, then I shall know fully, even as I am fully known. And now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. Thank you. Uh, back in May, I gave a kind of a first part of this message, and we called it the problem with love. And the problem with love, number one, just in a quick review, was that it's so familiar, it's so easy to think we've got this, and we, we move on to other things, right? But the thing about New Testament gospel love is that you never move on to new things. It's always foundational, always important in everything we do, but it's easy to overlook it and forget to do so. The second point I made was that where it talks about uh, if I have the gift of prophecy, I know all knowledge, I know all mysteries, I got faith, I can move mountains, uh, I, I deliver my body to, to, to suffering, uh, if I speak with the tongue of men, and oh, this is all about gifts and talents. But gifts and talents do not necessarily equal love. Love is not a gift, it's a fruit of the Spirit. It's an outworking of the Spirit having His way in you and me as believers. And so uh, never be fooled into thinking that gift and talent will, will make the church grow. It will not. Love will. Love will. Bottom line, full stop, period. Gifts and talents, thank God for them, and they have their place, and they're utilized to build the body. But never, to, never does love get pushed into the back seat that it's not important and that these things are more important. So we made that point. And then the third point we made was uh, uh, in, in verse 4 there, 
where Paul just turns the corner a little bit and he begins to define some of the qualities of love and he says, love is patient, love is kind. And we stop there. Love is patient, love is kind. That's difficult. That's really difficult. And we said, love is not efficient. Factories are efficient. Businesses are efficient. You put in, you, you spend less and you, you get more profit. You, you, you hone down your, your timelines and everything. You produce your product on time. You get your people drilled and disciplined and, and just functioning like an engine. But uh, you, know, you put in your raw material and out the other end of the factory comes a finished product. And the church is not a factory. You don't put in raw people and come out with perfect disciples. You have to be patient. Factory owners hate the word patience because patience means things are going wrong and milk is getting spilled in the house. You know, you think about a family. Families do not run on efficiency. Efficiency is good and it has a good place, but it, it, sometimes in the name of efficiency, we trample on people or we push people aside because they're not efficient, but they're important in God's eyes. And love is not based on efficiency. It's based, it's based upon patience and kindness to one another, even if one another isn't quite measuring up or messing up somehow. And, uh, and so we were making that point back in May. Christians and churches aren't factories. They're families. Families with Jesus as the head and love as our prime operating motive. <clears throat> Today's message in one long sentence. You ready? Before we came to Jesus, we saw the world in a certain way. We thought about ourselves and other people in a certain way. We responded to irritating and obnoxious people in a certain way. <clears throat> but, <clears throat> excuse me, but Christ has changed us. <clears throat> and we see others, we think within ourselves, we talk to others, we behave now differently Everything we do is marked by love because we are Christians now. And that makes all the difference in the world. I just want to impress that upon us and refresh us in that and bring us back to that standard again this morning. I'm not talking about love this morning because we have utterly and abysmally failed as a church. There are many wonderful Examples of loving, gracious, compassionate people here at Grace Community Church. I celebrate that, and, uh, and, and, and that is, is wonderful. But I'm just trying to be like some of the New Testament apostles who would speak to some of the early churches, and I'll read you a couple of scriptures in a moment, and they would recognize the love that was in the church, and then they would say, let's do better. Let's excel still more. Let's love more. Uh, here, for example, Paul wrote to the Philippian church, and he said to them at one point, and this I pray, this is my prayer for you, that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. And then he spoke to the Thessalonian church, and he said this, may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in giving, no, in love for one another. And Peter wrote, above all, when you see those words, stop and take note, above all, Keep fervent in your love for one another because love covers a multitude of sins. Did you see why I was worried when I was praying? That we would say, ah, I've heard all this before. Please hear it afresh and let's abound more and more. Seems like Paul, Peter, and those guys, they were ne never satisfied with the level of love. It was always like, let's love more, you guys. 
We're not even close to the love of Christ yet. Let's just keep excelling in love. Uh, the church will grow by being fertilized by the love of Christians and the spirit in us. Let me run a few examples past you of love from scriptures as it's referred to. Paul, as he was talking to the Corinthians in another place, described some scenarios that, that were probably, caused, probably raised their eyebrows. It was like, really? Uh, as he describes how he as a leader tried to lead these people in a life of love, in a life of Christ's love. I told you about the problems that the Corinthian church had. And, uh, and, and Paul's solutions are difficult and challenging. They sound impossible. I would, I would push back on that and say they're not impossible. They're just difficult. They're a high standard, and we're called to a high standard, and we need God's help to come even close to that standard. And, uh, and let's uh, just reset our bearings one more time. Uh, and grow and increase in love. Paul wrote about the life of an apostle, of a church leader in those days. It was quite unlike some of what we hear about some church leaders today who live high on the hog and drive like, you know, $100,000 cars and have six homes and a, and a private jet and all that stuff. Just between you and me, that's nuts. <laughs> Listen to Paul's life as a church leader. He said, when we are persecuted, we endure. I add, because we love with the love of Christ. When we, we don't take them to court, we endure. When we are slandered, and they were slandered, believe me, we try to conciliate. That means we try to make peace with them. What do you, what are you thinking, man? Can, can we reach some common ground here? When we are reviled, we bless. It has been said if you were having a bad day uh, back in the first century and you just needed someone to say a kind word of blessing to you, find the nearest Christian and insult him. When we are reviled, we bless. Why? Because we're Christians now. That's the bottom line. Everything's different. And that's so important. Jesus himself taught it, and he meant it. In the Sermon on the Mount, he said, if someone forces you to go one mile, go with them too. This is like long-suffering, patience, and kindness. This is thinking differently. Go with them too. What? If, if someone slaps you on your right cheek, don't slap them back. Offer them the other cheek also. What? If someone takes your shirt, give them your coat also. You are reaching out. You're using love not as a defense, but as an offense to reach and touch that person's heart with the love of Christ. It's powerful. And then he said, you have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor uh -huh, and hate your enemy. Yeah, everybody does that. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. We're called to this very different kind of behavior because we are Christians now. <clears throat> you know, this love is not just to be shown to people that we like and people we admire, and people who are our best buddies. We love them? Absolutely. Are we thankful for them? Totally. But this love is shown to other kinds of people as well. It's, it's our default response to all people. It's our default response to, to go and love and care for someone even if they're socially awkward, even if they're poor and have nothing which they could give to you. Even to the least of these in our midst, we show 
this love. Some people are blessed with attractive, cheerful, bubbly, effervescent personalities. And when we enter a room full of people, sometimes we scan the room and we look for that effervescent person and we go right to them because we just enjoy being around them, right? And, and sometimes it's good to be seen with them too. That's the old way of thinking. But now, when we enter a room, we scan the room and we're looking for the person standing alone over by the sidewall who no one wants to be near, no one seems to be talking to them, and we leave the in-group and we cross the room and we care for that guy because that's what Jesus would do and because we're Christians now. It's, it's, it's amazing, the power of love. James, the wonderful, beloved apostle James, wrote very specifically about a situation where a rich man and a poor man he said, hypothetically, come into your church gathering. Everyone fawns over the rich man, and they, they scurry around, and they seat him in a, just a great chair with a great view, and they say, you sit here. And then there's this poor guy, and they look at him, and they say, hey, buddy, over here, you can sit on the floor. James said, that is so wrong, it's not funny. He didn't exactly say that, but that's what he meant. He said, that is very wrong. He called it a sin the sin of partiality, being partial to the rich, the powerful, and, and, and treating other people poorly just because they're poor. And uh, Jesus said in Matthew 25, remember where he talked about how important it is to visit the unfortunate, the sick, the people who are in prison, the ones who are starving. And, and he said this, and this is so powerful, to the extent that you did it to one of these brothers of mine. You know what comes next? To the extent that you did that to one of these brothers of mine, you did it to me, he said. Treat them like you would be treating me. And uh, that is so, it, it explodes old ways of thinking, destroys them. Uh, but we've got to get this stuff into our hearts and live it out every day. <clears throat> so how different is this, this new kind of love now that we are Christians? How different is it, you ask? Paul wrote to the Corinthians in his second letter, 2 Corinthians chapter 5, and he said, the love of Christ controls me. And we no longer live for ourselves, but for him who died and rose again on our behalf. Did you hear that? The love of Christ controls me. The New International Version says the love of Christ compels me. Do you like being controlled? No. You like being compelled to do things? No, I don't think anybody does. It's not good to be controlled by anger. It's not good to be controlled by jealousy. But some of us are, some people are. But this is something new here. Paul says, the love of Christ controls me. The word controls or compels is a Greek word named syneko. And it means, and it would be used in everyday language, uh, to describe someone who was, uh, I'll describe two scenarios. One is this person has fallen into a raging torrent of a river, you know, like whitewater rafting. They've fallen in, hopefully they got their life jacket on, and they're being swept downstream. Everything's out of their control. They're just trying to keep their head above water and it's sweeping them down there. You know how that feeling would be? I've done that a little bit and banged into rocks and stuff. Or it's descriptive of a person who's in a mob, a crowd of people, and they're out of control, and they're racing down the street, and you're just kind of being carried along. You're being controlled, compelled, syneco. 
Uh, but what Paul is describing here is that I'm being carried along, swept along by the love of Jesus for people. It's got control of my life. I do stuff I, I can't even help myself because he's in me and his spirit fills me. And that love is, is coming, coming out of my life. It's, it's sweeping me along. Maybe it sweeps me across the room to care for that person who seems alone. Maybe it sweeps me down the street in <clears throat> my neighborhood to help someone who's having a hard time. Uh, hopefully, and I believe it is true in, in, even in our Just Right ministry, it sweeps us to, to find those neighbors amongst us who have the problem, the situation that Becky just described to us there, the mother, unemployed, autistic son, it sweeps us along to care for her. We can't help it. <laughs> That's a wonderful way to live. Oh, Lord, may we be swept along more and more by that beautiful, merciful, gracious, compassionate, self-sacrificing love of Christ I dare you and I dare me to pray for more of this because we are Christians now. Many of us are particular and exacting. We are particular and exacting about our doctrine and about our theology, about salvation, about the Bible, about Christ, about our statement of faith. And that's good. But we should be equally exacting and particular about our behavior and about our speech and about our attitudes because selfish or unloving attitudes or behaviors in the church, and sadly, we know it happens. We read stories. We hear of things. It makes our correct doctrine look foolish and empty. People go, yeah, right and they don't pay attention any longer. Come with me, uh, and let us look over the shoulder of the Apostle Paul as he pens the last chapter of his first letter to the unruly Corinthians, and we see his pen leave these words on the page. He says in 1 Corinthians 16, 13, and 14, Be on your guard, Corinthians. And we go, oh, that's good. That's be on your guard. And then he says, Stand firm in the faith. We go, that, that's excellent. Good, good words, Paul. Stand firm in the faith. Be courageous, he says. And we go, yeah, in times of fear and turmoil, we should be courageous. Be strong, he says. Good, Paul, very good. And then there comes these four words. Do everything in love. Excuse me? Do everything in love. Paul, uh, maybe you should have wrote, written, uh, do, do more things in love. To, to do a few more things. Try to up your game by 10%. <laughs> but the, as I said earlier, the standard is hard and the standard is high, but it's the standard of Christ. Do everything in love. You ever thought of baking a cake? And uh, you have your pan here, right? And there's various things that go into cake. And excuse me if I get the, some of this wrong, but there's an egg and there's chocolate and there's maybe some nuts and uh, I don't know, baking soda, maybe, baking powder, and there's flour. And so you bake your cake, and you put the eggs up in this corner of the pan, you break it and stir it up, and then you put some nuts here, and you put the chocolate pieces there in the baking powder, and you put the flour over here. You don't bake a cake that way. You mix it all together, right? And the flour isn't put separate at the end of the pan. The flour is mixed into everything. It's everywhere in the cake. 
Same with love. You don't just have a little love compartment in your life or in your church. You mix it into everything you think, say, and do. As Paul said, do everything in love. Everything. You're doing ministry at church, you're serving coffee today, do it in love. Really. Some of the best advice I ever heard as far as how to preach to people was never preach to a group of people that you don't love. I thought, whoa, that's kind of important. Otherwise, you'll yell at them and, you know, and belittle them. Do you love them? Parents, do you do everything in love? Do you sweep up the, the messes in love? Uh-huh. Yeah. Do you drive in, 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 in rush hour traffic in love? Do everything in love. I mean it. Paul meant it. Everything. That's, that's our standard because we're Christians now. That's so important. Mix love into the everything else that you're doing everywhere. I know it's hard. We need God's help. I know. Do everything in love. But you say this love isn't normal. Where does it come from? It's not from this world. Where does, where does this love come from? What is its source? Uh, Kathy and I co-own a, a cottage, family cottage, up north at Tobermory on Dunks Bay, on G- Georgian Bay. And uh, our cottage sits on this big rock. It's quite biblical. We're founded on the rock. And then uh, the rock's about 10 feet high. And at the base of the rock, there's the sand and there's the water that comes in. It's, it's so lovely. And out of the base of the rock this year was flowing a gurgling, bubbling brook, like a spring that was just... It's very enthusiastic. There'd been a lot of rain, and it was flowing from somewhere, and it was appearing here out of nowhere under the rock. And we're, we're curious, like, wonder where that spring comes from. Where, what's its source? That's what I'm asking. What's the source of this love that we see and feel? And, uh, and so I was reading this paper that we actually had that was done by a geologist who did a survey of the whole area, and he studied underground movements of water and in this particular area for a certain reason. And the paper said that he was asking the same question, and one day he, uh, he went uh, about two and a half kilometers away from our cottage, up the road, across the highway, and down, down, the, down another road, and uh, he found this kind of water on the surface and a sinkhole where the water is going down into the earth and disappearing, and you wonder where it goes. So he poured some red dye into the water up there, two and a half kilometers away. Lo and behold, red dye started coming out at the base of our cottage. There's a connection between the water under the rock at our cottage and the sinkhole up the road two and a half kilometers. There's a connection, friends, between love in your life and mine and the cross of Christ. That's the source, the gospel. I love it. You know when you were a kid on the playground and you get into a fight and, uh, and, and the teacher would separate you and you'd say, he started it. And the other kid would say, no, he started it. And we'd be back and forth. Well, we can say accurately this morning with regard to the love that's in the church, he started it. Christ did. He's the source. And never forget that. It's not a self-help book. It's not a philosophy book. It's not a live your life better book. It's the gospel. God so loved the world that he gave us the gospel, that he gave us his son. Uh, John is big on this, the apostle John. Uh, Three quick verses. 1 John 3.16 says, We know love by this, 
that he laid down his life for us. Okay, there's the gospel. Christ laid down his life for us and for our sins. And, and John says, that's got love written all over it. That's the definition of love. And then John says, and we ought to, and you might think he would say, we ought to lay down our lives for him. He laid down his life for us. We ought to lay down our lives for him. But that's not what he says. He says, we ought to lay down our lives for one another. His love triggers a response. Cause the cross. Effect you and me loving each other. John says in another place. First uh, John 4, just to get it right here. First John 4, uh, 11, 10 and 11. <clears throat> this is love, says John. Same kind of words. Not that we loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son as an atoning sacrifice for our sins. I've already been saying that. And then he says, dear friends, since God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. And then lastly, in the same chapter 4, John says it so succinctly and so clearly. We love because he first loved us. He started it. Study the gospel. Look deeply into the cross. I hope we talk about it lots here in the days ahead. Because in that wellhead are riches infinitely great of love and grace and compassion and thinking of others and sacrificing yourself for the good of others. That's the ultimate. We are pale reflections, but we must follow that pathway. Uh, I close with, a, with an observation. Um, <clears throat> I was reading one day through the uh, Gospels some years ago, and I read through Matthew or Mark or one of them, and you know how the resurrection is always in the last chapter of the Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John? And it struck me, I think I was reading Mark, because the resurrection account in Mark is so brief, it's about eight verses long. And, I, and I, I, I skipped over to Matthew, and, and I see that Matthew talked about the resurrection. I mean, the resurrection is the most important event that ever happened in human history. If the Bible is true, it is. So I looked at Matthew, one chapter, fairly short chapter. Mark, an even shorter chapter, describing the resurrection. Then I looked over at Luke 24, and it's a bit of a longer chapter, just one chapter. And then John, John went all out, two chapters. And I thought, God is not relying on the amount of words written and the amount of argumentation and all the logic and all the evidence to prove that the resurrection is true and to tell the world that the resurrection is true. So what did God rely upon? He just gave short accounts of the resurrection, gave us everything we need to know. He was dead and now he's alive. But where's the proof and the evidence that Jesus really did rise from the dead? It's you and me. It's our lives. He put his spirit in us and said, go to it. And, and Christianity has been thriving around the world ever since. Not because the resurrection accounts are so long, but because his spirit lives in his people. And Jesus said, a new commandment I give to you that you love one another as I have loved you. So you should love one another. And then he says, by this will all men know that you are my disciples. Here's the proof. Here's the proof is in the pudding. Here's the evidence. 
By this all men will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. Your, love, your life speaks. May it speak love. And may its source be the cross of Christ. Closing prayer. Oh God of infinite love, we invite you through your word and your spirit to be so at work in our lives that our lives would burn just like that bush burned in the desert and caught Moses' attention. And it drew him near to see what's going on. And lo and behold, he met the true God there. And may the people around us here in Guelph and surrounding area be drawn to that burning bush called Grace Community Church that burns with love. And may they find the Savior Jesus here. Amen.